Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cudaback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, household and family life, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third-order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cutterback also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, where he provides a weekly Wednesday quote and reflection on some aspect of the good life. Dr. Cutterback, an avid gardener and hunter, is happy to make a household with his family and children in the Shenandoah Valley. He's a frequent speaker for the ICC, as well as one of our Magdala Apostolate professors. Dr. Cutterback, the show is all yours. Thank you, Andy. Uh, well, this is uh, this is very exciting. It's it's great to be here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump right in, and I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go big. I'm gonna go global right away, and kind of uh, give you the big picture, spill the beans, go right for the heart of the matter as to why I think what we have before us here is so incredibly important. And I'm gonna begin with a quotation from a Greek whose name was Protagoras, and he said that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. This raises for us, and the degree is, is always one Greek or another who, who asks the most fundamental question or makes an assertion that really goes right to the heart of life. This astounding assertion names one major view of reality and of what it means to be human. It basically is asserting that man is at the center of the universe. Man is the measure. The word measure is an extremely important one in our tradition. St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, when he refers to law, wants to define law, he says the law is a kind of measure. There's, there's no perfect definition for law, for, pardon me, for measure, but I'd say a, a measure is something that gives form, it gives order. Man is the measure of all things. In many ways, I'd say this can be said as capturing. It's always, it's always difficult. It's a little dangerous to uh, speak in broad strokes. To speak of modernity, we have to be careful because there's, there's differences, right? It's not just monolithic. Everyone thinks the same. But then again, there definitely are major trends. A major hallmark 
of much of modern thought, right down to the contemporary world in which you and I are making our way every day, can be captured in this statement. Man is the measure of all things. When we, it, it, let's just draw this out a little bit. If man sees himself as the measure, then he is autonomous. Then he can basically say what is so or what is not. Morality will be a matter fundamentally of his making. So let's give a counterpoint. Man is not the measure of all things. There is a reality that is the measure of man. The man's thinking is measured by reality. And then once his thinking is measured by reality, then likewise his actions are measured by the reality that he has discovered. I know this is to speak very generally, but what I'd like to assert to you is really, I think it's fair to say this is one of the most fundamental ways of giving the two most fundamentally opposed views of reality and human life. Is man the measure or is he not? So I'm just going to begin by saying metaphysical thinking well, I'm going to use a bit in our time together here. Metaphysics, the approach to life that values, the treasures, metaphysical thinking, is the way of thinking that opposes the view that man is the measure of all things. The way of metaphysical thinking, the way that sees metaphysics as a key science, indeed, we're going to look at how it should be seen as the highest science. At the heart of this whole approach to life and reality is that there is an objective reality, being, beings out there that are the first measure of things. And that our place is our gift, our challenge, our honor is to use our intellect to discover that and to be conformed to that. But, but, but I want to bring out the drama here a little bit. It, very often it's, it can be very, if we think carefully and we don't just be dismissive of a problematic view, we can see how it is so attractive. There is something very powerful that is true, an important kernel of truth captured in this line, man is the measure of things. Because let me put it to you this way. Let me just paint a little picture. Picture a human person at the height of his powers. Man can measure things. I want you to picture a mature human person who is kind of the master of things in his life. Let's just let's just take an example, a father in a household, right? A, a, a nice kind of icon of human life going well. Picture the father in the household. In many ways, he is one who is the measure. He is the one who is ordering and giving form to things. In a sense, you could say, is this not what he does? And it's funny, one who is on the inside of that, you can experience yourself and, and, and kind of uh, be exhilarated and have this high of, look at this power that I have. Look at, look at what I can do. I, I give order to things. I'm a commander. I'm a, I'm a ruler. There is something very appealing about this because I suggest, indeed, we are calls to that. But sometimes it comes down to what seems to be a subtle 
distinction or subtle difference, but in fact, it's a difference that makes all the difference. Man is the measure of all things. If that statement is taken to its logical conclusion or taken in its fullness, let's not, we don't necessarily know exactly how Protagoras meant it. Let's just take that very powerful line as a way that it certainly can be interpreted is man is the first measure. Right. The kind of the autonomy of man, man is the center of the universe. There's not an objective duality to which he must conform. He is the ruler. Versus the way that I'm going to present here of metaphysical thinking. There is a reality out there which we must first of all discover. It's always about order. First of all, you discover, conform your mind to. Then having conformed your mind to it, then you are in a position to turn and give order in accord with the order that has been seen. Here I want to throw at you a, a, a favorite line of mine. Now, this is the first time I've done this, folks, so hang with me in case I make a little mistake here. I am going to write something on the whiteboard here. And if it does not come up out there, then you all will tell me. We can see it. You're looking good. All right, good. Yes, he is writing in another language right now. All right, I'm going to leave that up there for a moment and just keep talking to you. Here's a line that St. Thomas loves to quote. He's going to quote it once in one of the texts that we're going to look at together yet here today. That's S-A-P-I-E-N-T-I-S. Sapientis est ordinare. Est, in Latin, this is Latin. Est means it is. Sapientis is a present, active, participle, one who is, uh, but it's being used substantively. So it's naming one who is wise. And so what this says literally is, it is of the wise man, because that's the genitive case, it is of the wise man to order. St. Thomas takes this from Aristotle. This is fundamental to their understanding of what wisdom is, and thus of what it means to be human. So here's the astounding thing. I'm trying to paint really quickly for you here two very different views and showing you they're very, they're very close to one another in a very important way. Aristotle and St. Thomas say, what is it the most characterizes a wise man? And as you see, as we go on, ladies and gentlemen, there's going to be a very close identification between metaphysical thinking and the science of metaphysics and wisdom. And it is of the wise man to order. Another way of saying order is to measure. And so note the power of Pythagoras saying, man is the measure of all things. We have to be very careful in our language. In a sense, would Aristotle and St. Thomas be willing to say that a wise man could be called the measure of all things in, in this very important qualified way? Having been measured by reality. In other words, having humbly sought the truth of the objective truth of the being that is out there, having a mind that has come into conformity, oneness of form, conformity with it, it is the wise man who, seeing the order of things, again, the objective given order of reality, the wise man having seen that order, he is the one who now is able to give order. 
So, so note the, the, the fundamental contrast. I'm going to throw out a name of a modern philosopher who is the antithesis of metaphysics. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche, 19th century German. You've perhaps heard of him. He, he would be a kind of extreme prototype of man being the measure of all things. Man as autonomous. Man as being able to give order according to his own will. I give you on the one side the kind of Nietzschean, what Nietzsche would call the superman, the powerful man who, as it were, can order, command all things. Then I go over to something that has, as you know, and I always say to my students, it's all about, it's always about seeing sameness and difference. Sameness and difference. There's a sameness between the true wise man and the Nietzschean superman. And then there's a key difference. Sameness. They are both in a very real way in a position to order things, to rule, to command, to direct, to give form. Difference. One of them does so according to an order that he has discovered in reality. And his greatness is in having made that his own. Now, seeing the order, he can give order. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the epicenter of what our tradition means by wisdom. And right therein is already a great way to picture what we are called to. What does it mean in the traditional view to be rational? Note here, again, the two views. For, uh, for the tradition, reason is a power that can discover a truth that is above itself, above that power, a truth that in discovering we are measured by. We make our own. And then having made our own, we have the freedom, as it were, to use it well versus a rejection, an unwillingness to be measured. How are we doing? Does this make sense? Ladies and gentlemen, metaphysical thinking, then, I'm going to suggest right here at the opening, is perhaps the surest natural remedy. Right now we're setting aside supernatural grace. Metaphysical thinking is perhaps the surest natural remedy to the human propensity to see oneself as greater than one is and another human propensity to see oneself as lesser than you are. Metaphysics is the remedy to seeing yourself as as higher, as having a nobility that's not given to us. Although, in a sense, to claim a nobility that's not given to us really isn't objectively to claim to be higher, because really the God has called us, our nature has called us to the height. But nonetheless, the tradition holds that to hold that Protagorean view, to hold the Nietzschean view of man as the measure of all things, is to pretend to be God. God is the measure of all things in the original sense. Man is not. To pretend to it is to aim too high and thus is a function of pride. But how it, it, modernity is, is, is a strange combination, dare I say often, a toxic combination of aiming too high in the sense of a proud gathering unto ourselves prerogatives that are not our own. And at the same time, aiming far too low and not seeing the astounding dignity that we have in our human vocation to see and discover order 
and then to be able to give it in various and sundry ways. So again, I say to you in opening, metaphysical thinking and the science of metaphysics is perhaps the greatest natural remedy to pride, to thinking that we are higher than we are, and also to all the ways of a, of that tend to lead to despair of not recognizing what it means to be human. And I almost more kind of on the theme of mercy would want to go here. How many human people suffer from not having ever been told, not knowing how to imagine the astounding dignity that is in fact ours, that metaphysics, the ability to come to see this order of reality out there would in fact reveal to us. What I hope to do in our time together is several fold. Here's a little list. One, I want to give you some sense of the current problem in philosophical thinking. And we're going to need to, we're going to need to look at philosophy as it stands now. Philosophy always has a significant influence, even if it doesn't come till a little bit later on. Philosophy always has a very significant influence in human life. To give you some sense of the current problem, for that we're going to use St. John Paul II. Second, to introduce you to the nature and importance of, of metaphysical thinking. Here I'm, I'm referred to in a very broad way. I'm going to try to be a little bit more specific. So I'm going to introduce you to its nature, what I mean by it, and its importance. And we're going to see it, hopefully, as a needed remedy to many of the ills of our day. Third, I want to introduce you to some basic aspects of the science that is called metaphysics. Finally, I'm going to offer a caveat, which I think is pretty important. And that is this. I'll say it now, and I'll say a little bit more about it later. Not all of us will become or need to become metaphysicians in the proper sense, but all should strive to do as much metaphysical thinking as reasonably possible. This is, this is super important to, so we can set our sights properly. At the end of the, the point of this, of our time together in these two webinars is not what you have to do, ladies and gentlemen, is you've just got to get out there and take a course in metaphysics. That's not what I'm going to be saying to you. The term, I'm going to use this more general term of metaphysical thinking, of which the science of metaphysics is the height. But frankly, part of what we discover when we look at reality as it is, is something that, that some, particularly among us today, but it's always been so, we'll find a little unpleasant. What I meant among us today is, I mean, in the contemporary world, it is kind of obsessed with egalitarianism, is that in this life, some people are more suited to that than others, and that's okay. Metaphysical thinking is available to all of us. To, to really do the science of metaphysics is not. And so that's not going to be the upshot is you've got to study the science of metaphysics, though I want you to have some sense of what it is. Let's do this now. I have a, a couple pages of quotations that I think that Andy has in some way made available to you. I'm going to read it out loud, but I had a two-page document that I just called The Medicine of Metaphysics, some quotations from John Paul II's encyclical letter, Fides et Ratio. The, the quotations are numbered from John Paul II, one through five, and um, I'll refer to them as I go and read them out loud. And if you can't see it in the side thing, no sweat. All right, so I'm, quotation number one. So Fides Aratio, Faith and Reason, St. John Paul II talked quite a bit about metaphysics in there, and he set up the issue of uh, the current situation. Quotation one, surveying the situation today, we see that the problems 
of other times have returned, but in a new key. It's no longer a matter of, of questions of interest only to certain individuals and groups, but convictions so widespread that they have come, become to some extent the common mind. I pause. When he says that they have become to some extent the problems of the common mind, the, the problems of the other times that he's referring to is for some several hundred years, major thinkers in philosophy have been rejecting metaphysics in various and sundry ways. But those views of those philosophers had not become the common view of the civilization. And so what he's, what he's saying here is surveying the situation today, problems of other times have returned, but a new key. And really he's saying in, in, in a sense, in a more serious key where the, the kind of shenanigans that went on among philosophers as regards the rejection of metaphysics that kind of stayed at that, you know, 30,000 feet or among the intelligentsia, but the common man still had customs, customary ways of thinking, customary ways of act, acting that were still very much rooted in a tradition of metaphysical thinking is not so anymore. Now, the, those shenanigans, if I may put it that way, of the philosophers have become the common way of thinking. I go on. An example of this is the deep-seated distrust of reason, which has service, surfaced in the most recent developments of much of philosophical research, to the point where there is talk at times of the end of metaphysics. Philosophy is expected to rest content with more modest tasks such as the simple interpretation of facts or an inquiry into restricted fields of human knowing or its structures. Right. The key thing I wanted you to see there, an example of this is the deep-seated distrust of reason. All right. The, this, and again, we'll see more as we proceed what this means, a kind of lack of, of metaphysical thinking. The common man earlier would have had much more confidence in our ability to, for instance, this will be one of the major examples I'll use of metaphysical thinking, come to understand an understanding of what it means to be human. Note how today the common view tends to be there is no way to come to an understanding of that. Now, that type of thinking has been going on among philosophers for for quite a while. It has not been the view of the common man, except for within whatever we say, two, three, one, two generations. So we have a very serious situation now of the vagaries of philosophy have now become a perversion of the common mind. I go on now to the second quotation. He's going to, he's going to characterize this change a little more. Here I do not mean to speak of metaphysics in the sense of a specific school or particular historical current of thought. I want only to state that reality and truth do transcend the factual and the empirical and to vindicate the human being's capacity to know this transcendent and metaphysical dimension in a way that is true and certain, albeit imperfect and analogical. In this sense, metaphysics should not be seen as an alternative to anthropology, since it's metaphysics which makes it possible to ground the concept of personal dignity in virtue of their spiritual nature. Jump back to the beginning of that. Here I do not mean to speak of metaphysics in the sense of a specific school when, when he's saying we need to restore metaphysics. I'm not talking about a, a specific school or a particular historical current of thought. I want to state, want only to state that reality and truth do transcend the 
factual, the empirical, the word empirical means what comes particularly through sense experience. And to vindicate, this is a nice expression right here of what I'm going to call metaphysical thinking. To vindicate the human being's capacity to know this transcendent and metaphysical dimension in a way that is true and certain. All right. So implied here is this is precisely what's been lost. By and large, even the common man has lost confidence in his ability as a rational being to be able to use his reason to transcend the realm of the factual and the empirical to get to insights into things such as human nature, right and wrong, a moral code, the existence of a human soul. No, no, these things are things that transcend direct sense experience. They transcend what we would call facts, right? Facts, ladies and gentlemen, you can look up on the Internet, but you don't just look up on the Internet. human nature but can we come to have some understanding of human nature can human reason do this saying this is precisely what has been lost i go on wherever men and women discover a call to the absolute and transcendent again particularly transcendent just beyond what's immediately available to our sense experience the metaphysical dimension of reality opens up before them in truth in beauty, in moral values, in other persons, in being itself, in God. We face a great challenge at the end of this millennium to move from phenomenon to foundation, a step as necessary as it is urgent. We can't stop short at experience alone, even if experience does reveal the human being's interiority and spirituality. Speculative thinking must penetrate to the spiritual core and the ground from which it rises. Ladies and gentlemen, we're starting to get into a little bit of deep waters there, but I'm just going to note something for you here. Again, sometimes I'm going to throw something out to those who are able to go a little deeper or already have had occasion to. And if you're, if you're not in that group, that's okay. I'm always going to kind of back up then and try to get our basic things straight. The word phenomenon is a very important word there in modern thinking. It particularly goes back to a thinker named Immanuel Kant, who was one of the major underminers of metaphysics in modern thinking. And, and Kant's big turn was from saying, we can't know reality as it is, but we do know phenomena. And the word phenomena, the plural phenomenon, means the things that appear. Here, so, so the Pope has this clearly in his mind, this whole school of thinking that has become so dominant that puts phenomenon, phenomena over reality. We face a great challenge at the end of this millennium to move from phenomenon to foundation. And what it means there is, can or cannot human reason get to the reality itself, which would be the foundation, which would be behind anything that appears? There's always a relativity to some extent in how things appear to us. The world's not going to appear the exact same way to you as it does to me. If all we think in terms of our appearances, then you can see why people become very subjectivist and relativistic. And, and again, here, this is one of those moments where you can see how appealing this way of thinking is. You can see how people can get themselves into this fix. How do I know anything other than just how things appear to me? How can I be confident that there's anything behind reality as it appears? Ladies and gentlemen, the tradition is convinced 
and convinced that we should be too by an honest look at our experience that reason is able to penetrate through the appearances to get at reality. But it's not as though there's necessarily a simple proof for this. These are difficult things, ladies and gentlemen, where sometimes I just have to point out to you in, in this seminar, you're not going to get like a silver bullet to go to someone and say, you know, what, you just think that all we know is how things appear? I'm going to now prove to you right now how we must be able to get at reality. Were it so easy? I'm not saying there aren't things that we can do to help people gain a greater confidence that their knowledge, that their reason can penetrate to the foundation to which the Pope is referring here. The reality, the real being that is out there. It's something that by slow customizing people, we can try to draw them back to that way of thinking. There isn't a magic arg argument. I'm going to go on, uh, just I want to wrap up on John Paul II here. I'm looking at uh, quotation number three. Sundered from that truth, individuals are at the mercy of caprice, and their state as person ends up being judged by pragmatic criteria based essentially upon experimental data in the mistaken belief that technology must dominate all. Let's pause on that sentence here, ladies and gentlemen. There's, sometimes the Pope uses language that isn't immediately penetrable, but I think if you hang with me here, you'll say, sundered from that truth, the deeper truths of reality, that truth that transcends just the facts of sense experience, a truth such as, again, my main example, that there is a human nature that we all share in common. Sundered from that truth, individuals are at the mercy of caprice, and their state as person ends up being judged by pragmatic criteria based essentially upon experimental data. I mean, th this was already prophetic. It was going on then. But I mean, note, this is a, a, a great insight into the tragedy we have with the loss of metaphysical insight, with the loss of metaphysical thinking. We've lost the foundation of understanding the dignity, the nobility of human persons. They would give us the principles to order human life and society based upon what it means to be human. So, so what do we have? What's he, what's he pointing to here? He, he, he's rooting in a significant way the silliness we have, I and mean, silliness isn't a strong enough word, that judges people simply in pragmatic terms that ask the question about pregnancy and whether whether it should be continued or not based simply upon certain pragmatic considerations. This this type of thing is a fruit of our being having been cut loose from these deeper realities that would have given us a mooring point from which always to hold in mind these deeper truths that would fundamentally form and change how we would judge human life and what life should look like in community and society. So what's he say? it's a loss of metaphysical thinking that very much is at the root of now persons end up being judged by pragmatic criteria based essentially upon experimental data and the mistaken belief that technology must dominate all. Let's just finish that number three. It has happened, therefore, that reason, I love this clause, wilted reason, your power of reason, Wilted under the weight of so much knowledge, little by little has lost the capacity to lift its gaze to the heights. <laughs> Quick side note. I mean, th th think of education, ladies and gentlemen. How many incredibly bright, th think of the seriousness of this, the incredibly bright young people that I come upon, very excited to go off to college. I see these people all the time. 
not not my own un- undergraduates. I'm not saying that they're perfect, necessarily always different, but I'm just saying kind of out there in the, in the, in the normal collegiate situation, I mean, very bright people are so excited to go out and use their reason completely in the vein that isn't necessarily in itself wrong, but is a completely kind of pragmatic, fact-oriented, very narrow vein. And our, quote, best and brightest minds are doing that. Isn't it an astounding sign of the times? Who among the brights say, wow, I can't wait to start to study metaphysics. I can't wait to start to ask the deeper questions of life with confidence that I can answer them. See, if the best and brightest going about in, 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 I'll just say again, kind of entirely pragmatic veins, deprived of the deeper truths that would have given direction to the very pragmatic veins that they're moving in. And so we have the unspeakable tragedy of the narrowing of the mind to be always moving in a vein where it has not the principles whereby it would get the direction. And that is, I think, precisely what John Paul II here is referring to. I give you just the fourth quotation quickly and we move on. Preferring quick success to the toil of the patient inquiry into what makes life worth living. Ladies and gentlemen, what an astounding line there. Preferring quick success. Again, I just think of the really bright people. How are they using their reason? We are, we are drawn into the veins where you, you get quick success in a very money-oriented society, by and large. It isn't, am I exaggerating to say that bright people, it's kind of assumed. If you are very bright, you will surely use your brightness to do something that is well-paid. For a quick success to the toil of patient inquiry, very significant, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in metaphysical thinking, it is a toil that requires patient inquiry. But what is it an inquiry into? What makes life worth living? Of course, the problem, and this is why we need the medicine, although how do you get the sick person to recognize that he needs the medicine? We are so sick that we don't think, we don't realize that there is an inquiry that can get to the truths that would tell us why life is worth living. And so we don't set forth on metaphysical thinking in search of it because we have been convinced that it can't be done. Think how many people despair because what the world has to offer them has understandably left them feeling very alone, very isolated, and very unfulfilled at the end, because at the end of the day, they're not interested in just a bunch of pragmatic stuff and facts and power and pretending that you're the measure or thinking the bodily pleasures are going to fill us. And so they don't think that there's anything that makes life worth living throughout in the text that we're going to see. St. Thomas Aquinas is very much going to connect metaphysical thinking and human happiness always go together. Doesn't mean you have to be a metaphysician to be happy. But metaphysical thinking is what uncovers the things that are key to showing us how to be happy. I'm done with the quotations there. Quick sum up of what I think we've seen in John Paul II. Modern mind in general is infected with a lack of confidence in reason. What was perhaps once more the disease of great philosophers 
has now become the disease of our whole community. More specifically, this is a skepticism that human reason can go beyond the world of sense data, the facts, the realm of things that we simply use, a skepticism that we can come to deeper and higher truths about ourselves and about the cosmos of which we are a part, and then, of course, ultimately God. Key clause I want to remind you of in John Paul II, we need to go from phenomenon, how stuff appear, to foundation. I need you to see why metaphysical thinking is very threatening. We've already seen it a little bit, but it is very threatening to people and understandably threatening. And to understand this is to help us pastorally, but more to the point, it's going to help us understand the importance of that metaphysical thinking. Consider this, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to take the view of Nietzsche. The view of Nietzsche looks back historically and says, not, not only, of course, is it ridiculous to hold that we can come to understand something such as an objective human nature that we all share in common. But once you hold, hold that, note, this is very important for us as we make this examination ourselves. What does this view then think of the people of which you might be one who hold that you can come to understand certain objective truths? such as a human nature that we all share in common. According to Nietzsche, those who held that there was an objective human nature, why did they do so? Bear in mind, once you're in the mindset that the human mind cannot, that it was silly to hold that reason can transcend, as John Paul II says, transcend the empirical data that which science looks at. Once you're in that mindset, then note how somebody who tries to do metaphysics is the enemy. Someone who tries to do metaphysics is the problem. Why? Because Nietzsche ha has captured this simply by putting it this way. Why would someone be so bold as to claim that he holds, that he knows what human nature is? Not only his own human nature, but your human nature. The only reason that someone would do that is because that person is in fact power hungry. That person is going to now try to impose his way of thinking on you. And ladies and gentlemen, you need to see the inner logic here. This makes sense. If metaphysical thinking is in fact not really possible, if you can't really succeed in coming to, to reliably know the deeper realities that give meaning and purpose and direction to life, then, in fact, it's not just silly for someone to claim that he can, but it's going to be dangerous. And, ladies and gentlemen, what you need to see is this is where we stand. Those who do metaphysical thinking are now held to be the extremists. They are the problem. They are the ones who cause wars. They are the ones that go after other people, being convinced that they know how things should be. Metaphysical thinking is now very much of a piece with religious extremism in the modern view. Ladies and gentlemen, let's just go ahead, Andy, and let's let's pop up quiz number one here. This is not meant to be a trick quiz. It's just to get the juices flowing. Shall we just jump in and say the correct answer is all of the above? Let's just let's just zing through. And here, I, I, know, I know you're really itching to more do metaphysics proper, although, again, 
I, I really think it's most to the point here to have, at least at first, the big picture so we have a sense of, A, what we're talking about anyway, and why it makes so much difference. For what reason do people find metaphysical thinking threatening? So let's just take this as a quick list to sum up a number of things we've said and maybe throw in one or two that we hadn't. It's very difficult. Thus, it offends a sense of egalitarianism wherein all knowledge should be equally accessible to every, everyone. Some people are going to excel at this more than others. All are capable of human happiness. Uh, all are capable of doing metaphysical thinking in some important way. But it is very difficult, particularly when it goes more deeply into it. Grace is going to be an amazing uh, leveler in certain ways, but grace is never a, a complete leveler. There's still a beautiful hierarchy in things. It defends our sense of egalitarianism. B, it leads to serious disagreements and wars among men because people come to different conclusions and are convinced they are right and others are wrong. This is one of the reasons that people have always had a, a temptation towards the kind of classical liberalism of, look, let's just all agree to get along. We're so sick and tired of people claiming to know the truths about reality and therefore beating other people over the head with it. Let's, the, the truly human approach is just to recognize you got to give them freedom to think whatever they want. This is a very appealing viewpoint, and it is a, a very problematic one. See. It can't be verified by empirical science as we know it. And it claims to stand in judgment of empirical science. Great, great, great example of this, my former professor of mine, God rest his soul, Father Lawrence Dewan, OP, Dominican. He once wrote into the New York Times about, about the Big Bang. And, and he just, he just kind of zinged right to the, to the heart of the matter and just said, you know, very interesting as a scientific theory, but let's just set out what this context is and what the Big Bang can or can't address. Perfect instance of meta the science of metaphysics standing in judgment of all other knowledge, something that people find very offensive, particularly where science is, of course, held to be the most ultimate appeal. D, it gives an objective understanding of what it means to be human, including a spiritual soul. And I just put this one in as I think a particularly significant one now, a real and meaningful difference between the sexes, right? Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be, this is going to be very threatening. We have to reckon with that. E, it points to an objective code of good and evil in the moral life. Enough said why that's going to be threatening. F, it shows the human person to be both uniquely noble in the material world. And there are some that are very offended by what they call an ethnocentrism, right? Or not an ethnospark, species centrism. How dare we assert that we have any special place over all the other species in the, on Earth, right? Metaphysics is going to come in and say humans are unique and they stand out while also radically dependent on a first cause. So to that to that temptation to kind of put ourselves first, again, make us be the measure, metaphysics itself is just going to come in and say, man's unique and noble among things on the earth. Man is radically subordinate to the first cause God. All right, there we go. Um, I'm thinking that we need to open up for questions right now. So let's do that. Okay. Chris McManus is writing in and writes the following. It would seem that the more druidic 
realists of our time who are unable to see beyond the reality in front of them would then have difficulty understanding more abstract concepts of reality, more concrete than the existence of God, such as the grandeur of the universe or the intricacies of genetics. What is the line we cross in the transition from abstract thinking to metaphysical thinking? Hmm. There is a good question in there. And, and, and I, no, 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 there is. And I'm just, I, I, I understood enough to know that there's a good question in there, but I didn't quite get enough to know exactly what the question was. Um, I think that's fair. Chris, I know that you're in here. If you'd like to. Oh, just, is that someone here who can, who can explain that or no? They're, they're in the webinar. Sorry. They're not a video oh. participant, but oh. Ms. McManus, okay. if you'd like to just, maybe you want to put in a little qualifier or, or a rephrase, that's fine. In the meantime, Kristen, yes, go right. ahead. I, uh, you know how to unmute yourself, so I'll let you do that. And this might be related to that question. Good. Um, but I'm wondering to what degree with sort of the current modern mind and where we're at with relativism and stuff, to what degree reason the ability for people of this mindset to reason at all or how, how much reason itself has been degraded, that there seems to be a related metaphysics and the, the ability to think. And how, if you could just comment on that a little bit, as far as getting, um, yeah. That's I, 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 okay. It, it's hard to form my question. And, and, and here I think I, I, I think I saw the heart of what you're saying. Um, in any case, if I'm running with a direction that's not exactly what you wanted, I apologize and you can correct me. I don't mean to sound negative. But the, the, um, hope must inform all, but hope always begins with reality as it is. And we, we need to recognize that there has been a serious degradation of the ability to use reason. There are a number of reasons for that, but one I want to point to is this. It's, it's I mean, the filtering down of the philosophers themselves having rejected the ability of reason. It, it slowly comes through, and that's kind of coming from the thinkers themselves and undermining of reason, has gone hand in hand with a bringing to the fore, I'm just going to say, of appetite, of passions. And in general, that I mean, that it, particularly in the dynamic of sin and fallen human nature, it's precisely our passions that reason needs to be used based upon some objective standard to bring into order. If, if reason can't succeed in seeing a standard that would be the basis for bringing your passions into order, then passions are going to be untamed and just have primacy. And then we begin to live by our passions. Now, there's always been a danger of this. And Aristotle said wonderfully at the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, he said part of the reason that younger people are often incapable of really studying, in this case, ethics, he said because they live by their passions, and they aren't used to using their reason in such a way that they have to kind of, as it were, buckle down and be serious about taking the time to get the insight into the truth by which they would then form their life. So we have an entire generation or two that has never really been exercised in using their reason with any type of confidence about getting to deeper things. And so, as uh, Shakespeare said, is reason to fust in us unused? I mean, in many ways, it is fusting, whatever exactly fusting is. You kind of feel it, whatever that means. 
it, 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 it's fasting all right, unused because it's it's getting weaker because we are, we're not so we get uh, worse than using logic at all, and and so our reason is always going to go in some vein. This goes back. I go back to where young people, I mean particularly smart ones, they're going to use their vein their their reason in some vein that they find engaging and challenging, and they'll find that in computer programming. They'll find that in engineering. They'll find that in any number of things, you know, molecular biology, all of which are things that are worth studying, but they are none of which are asking the deeper questions that require the more universal kind of principles that take the patient inquiry. And so to begin to give people, again, the confidence that it can be done and then start to get in them the habits of actually doing so is going to take a civilizational change and or a miracle of grace. I don't know if that was addressing your, your question. And again, I don't say that to be negative, but we have, we have to be realistic. Now, where we can start with ourselves, that, uh, you know, that's obviously much more of a positive thing. And then we can pattern that for people. And then as I like to emphasize what we can do in our ho- own households, it's amazing, ladies and gentlemen. And I pause to say this because this is very serious and very encouraging. Households can be a place where metaphysical thinking is taken seriously and is cultivated. And just from the practice that is done there, that all the difference, you will see all the difference. It's astounding how different one 18-year-old can be from another as regards the ability to reason, to ask deeper questions and go about them, and by, particularly aided by grace and using such things as scripture and studying scripture, this is a very metaphysical kind of exercise. Any other questions right now, Andy? Yes, yeah, certainly. And Mr. McManus, I see your qualification. The question makes perfect sense now. But based on what it is, I'm going to hold it for the second half because I think it'll be more appropriate then. I'm going to combine Andrea's and Toby's question. Uh, we're kind of going back to the the, the root here. And uh, this is very good to clarify. Andrea's wondering, how does Dr. Cutterback define metaphysics? And Toby is adding, He's wondering if you have heard of the term critical thinking, and is this becoming similar or is it similar to what you are calling metaphysical thinking? Okay. Well, and this is the thing, it was all a matter of what order I did things in, and I I was trying to lay out certain general things as to why what we're going to say about metaphysical thinking is so important. I have not defined metaphysics yet, and as much as I'm about to, uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to beg off on that. I was hoping that what I, by my referring to metaphysical thinking, that I was giving a rough and ready ex- demonstration of it by saying it's the ability of reason to go beyond the mere, merely empirical and factual to get to the deeper and higher realities that transcend immediate empirical ex- experience. That's what I mean by metaphysical thinking. I'm going to distinguish that from the science of metaphysics, which we will do in the second half. Very quick question on critical thinking. Critical thinking is a much more generic term, and no, it does, is not necessarily the same thing by any stretch of the imagination, though it's a good question. You could, I mean, in, in, uh, now again, terms might, that term, critical thinking, could be used by someone to mean what I'm meaning by metaphysical thinking. But I absolutely do not think in normal common parlance it would be taken that way. If we're in, if I'm in an MBA program studying various aspects of economics and running a business, I'm going to be encouraged to be a very careful, critical thinker. 
right? I mean, cr- critical thinking seems to me to be just in its fundamental meaning to mean you're being very careful. You're taking a very questioning approach. You're trying to be logical. You're, pr- you're properly analyzing things and synthesizing to get a good answer. I mean, th- this can be done about any number of things. We know about how to wage an evil war. You can use critical thinking to do so. So critical thinking is a very broad term. Does metaphysical thinking, is it necessarily critical in that careful way of being self-reflective and self-examining each step as it goes about what it's doing? Yes. But the question is, what is the, what is the content that is being examined? And that the, the content and the questions being asked in metaphysics is much more specific than using the term critical thinking. Excellent. I wish that I could share how how difficult it is for me right now, on just a quick example, to figure out what order to do this stuff in. This is one of the hardest things that I have to try to do as a teacher to to all right, how do we how do we take a science that is so dramatic and so deep and try to give some sense of what it is and why it's so important and why no one's doing it, all of which is kind of important background. I mean, I, I ask you if you if you feel like, well, why would we we didn't really seem to be doing metaphysics. We were more talking about the problem of metaphysics and why would it be so important to get it right. And ladies and gentlemen, I mean, if we just right now start to talk about actuality and potentiality and how, how you know, how they're related to one another and just talk about, you know, and how, OK, you know, true, good. And one are, are transcendental, so it applies to all, but it applies to all in this way. You could take notes on all that, and it would it would be instructive. But you have to have a context. You have to have a bigger picture. And one of the dangers in, in metaphysics is to try to just satisfy ourselves by just kind of starting to do the stuff, the stuff of the actual science itself is not exactly what I think is what we're most ready for and would be the most instructive thing here. So I, I ask you to bear with me. Why, well, why was I saying this is so different, difficult? It's the place of the wise man to order, to know what order to treat things in. It is the one who has to have the, the more comprehend. Anyone who's tried to teach something of any complexity knows what I'm saying now. You have to take the, you have to look at the big picture. You have to digest it at all. Then you have to go inside the one to whom you're trying to present it and say, in what order of saying these things would those people be able to most put this together? Because reason always is about seeing things in order. And I, I, I will be failing at that. And that's because I'm not as wise as I wish that I were. All right. This is what I mean by metaphysical thinking. Still coming to talk about, about metaphysics, but this is one of the most important distinctions I want to make for you in our time together. Because again, if you think that the point is you got to go out there and take a course on metaphysics, we're missing it. What you do need to focus on metaphysical thinking, a way of thinking that confidently seeks and achieves insight into realities, a way of thinking that confidently seeks and achieves insight into realities that transcends what is immediately available to sense experience. I'm going to go on. A way of thinking that confidently seeks and achieves, in varying degrees, of course, insight into realities that transcend what is immediately available to the sense experience. This way of thinking 
begins to grasp the hierarchy of being. This way of thinking begins to grasp the hierarchy of being and especially focuses on the beings that are highest. So what have I said here about metaphysical thinking? Ladies and gentlemen, it's a way of thinking that is seeking and having some success in, and always can have some success, in coming to insight into these realities that transcends what's immediately available to our senses. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I, this is something that can be done in many ways. And may I, may I suggest something to you as a very quick sidebar? And I, and I say this in complete seriousness. In many ways, we're an overly rationalist age. We're very careful. Uh, we don't want to appear as saying something that seems superstitious, that seems ungrounded in hard, cold facts. And, and we really look down our nose at, 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 at cultures that, for instance, thought that there were fairies behind the trees. I pause here for a moment, ladies and gentlemen. So a number of simple country folk thought that there were fairies behind the trees. Are you confident that there are not fairies behind the trees? The word fairy is an interesting word. In any case, I'm here to tell you philosophically, I think it could be reasonably argued Theologically, it's right there to be said. There are angels behind trees when you walk in the woods. Who's seeing things more for who they are, for what they are? The, the, the person that is steeped deeply in, in modern science and is convinced as he walks through the woods that he knows what he needs to know about trees and how they grow. Do the angels have nothing to do with how trees grow and how the wind blows? And where it goes and where it doesn't go. Rationalism and, and over or scientism and overconfidence in what empirical scientific knowledge has to offer is a very serious danger. So what I'm recommending here is not necessarily, you don't have to talk about fairies behind trees, but with my own children, try to be very careful when they, when they raise questions that might have seemed a little superstitious or a little odd or do you think there might be such and such going on, Daddy? I'm just sharing with you my own approach. I tend to say, huh, good question. I wonder what might be going on over there. Daddy, do you, do you think, do you think Grandpa sees what we're doing right now? Hmm. Good question, son. Good question. I'm not exactly sure whether I'd say Grandpa sees, but he might. Let's wonder about that a little bit. These things cross over very easily into, into these deeper realities that transcend our senses. It's not just the supernatural, ladies and gentlemen, that transcends our senses. There's a lot of things that are available to natural reason that transcend our senses, such as a soul. What is it? Can our reason get at it only by, only by being very patient and only by being very careful? Metaphysical thinking, a way of thinking that confidently seeks and achieves insight into realities that transcend what is immediately available to sense experience. This way of thinking begins to grasp the hierarchy of being and the being, especially that focuses on the beings that are highest in it. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I emphasize to you hierarchy of being. Metaphysical thinking is, is very hierarchical. 
One of my favorite aspects of the science of metaphysics, which we're coming to, I will not leave you without having said more about it, I promise, is what's called the great chain of being. It was a very common term in the Middle Ages. It's almost never used anywhere. The great chain of being. What the view of the great chain of being is, is that there's a very well-ordered hierarchy. It includes all of the angels. Every angel is a different species. Every angel is either above or below every other angel. None of them are the same in dignity. Every other one has, St. Thomas says, with a great tradition, that it's like, it's like integers. It's like the natural numbers. Every angel is, is, as it were, one of those numbers. All the other angels are above. All the other angels are below. There's an absolutely highest angel. There's an absolutely lowest angel. Then when you get down and then you cross over into the realm of the material, there are species that are at the top of the material realm. And then even within that species, there are individuals that achieve a greater dignity through their actions than others do. And then you move down through the species. So there's a hierarchy of being. Those that are unsold are higher than those that, that don't have souls. And then there's different powers of the souls. And those have more powers of the soul, higher than those have fewer powers of the soul. This is all metaphysical thinking. It's gone beyond what is immediately empirically verifiable, but, no, but nonetheless, there's very good reason to hold these things. I'm not going to be able right, right here to say, well, he, here is the reasoning. I'm pointing to the type of things that metaphysical reasoning does. It, go, it gets at a hierarchy of being. It gets at the natures and distinguishes those different natures. And that is all metaphysical thinking there's metaphysical thinking that that metaphysical thinking i'd say is always going to be the beginning of the science the science is going to be a more systematic way of doing metaphysical thinking children can be taught to do metaphysical thinking children are not going to have the systematic science the full ordered body of knowledge that metaphysics the simple definition of which is the science of being as being that's one of the even in the definition of it, you kind of go, oh, geez, what does that mean? Good question. That, that is a tricky question, and it takes a lot even to see what that means. And so right off the bat there, again, I make a quick distinction between the science of metaphysics, of which I'm going to say a little bit more about its subject, I'm going to say a little bit more about its objects, and about the different names of, of the science of metaphysics. But, I, but, but what I really want to emphasize to you here is, is not that you have to be doing the science per se, but that you should be looking into our tradition and trying to do more metaphysical thinking, investigating the traditional ways of understanding human nature and of the soul, which one can begin to do without going into the bowels of the science of metaphysics. All right, thus I've said metaphysical thinking, which is my main concern here. Metaphysics is interested in the being of things. It goes to something that is, is very much kind of at the roots of things that they exist. Being is, is a rich notion. It's something that all things hold in common, but at the same time, there's great difference in being, which is what I've referred to by the hierarchy of being. One thing that metaphysics, again, is extremely attentive to is, as Father Dewan, the great metaphysician, said, is different modes of being, different levels of being. Some things be more than other things be. Some being is much richer than other being is and it takes a bit of insights to see that a tree there's there's more being there's more there than there is in a rock someone can just come along and say 
Hey, a tree is a tree and a rock is a rock. Why, why do you have to say one's better? What, what's your, what, what's, what, why the constant hankering after hierarchy? There is more in a tree, and the more of a tree is better. Being is always good. And to have a deeper, richer, fuller existence or mode of being is a great thing. It is a more noble thing. It is a more rich thing. This is metaphysical thinking. From the start, the philosophers had insight into the hierarchy and how we want to try to get to the deeper and the higher. And that there are, there is being that is so rich, that is so full, that is so much fuller than our own, that just to see it is a great completion of our own being. This is a very metaphysical approach that our own being will be completed in coming to grasp and know, to see, to be measured by being that is much greater being than our own being. But in grasping, we approach unto. Ladies and gentlemen, this is at the heart of metaphysics. I am going to read you a, a jaw-dropping quotation, which I didn't give to Andy. It's from Plato's Symposium, one of his most famous dialogues. If you want to reference your, yourself uh, using the Platonic numbering, it is 210E as an Edward. We can perhaps end up giving this to you uh, later. But listen to this. This is a kind of culmination of the symposium, which was about love. And now the question is, what ultimately the lovers want? Note how metaphysical this is. This is so Plato, if you've had any exposure to Plato. You know, I love to point out to my students, this most significant of truths is shared with Socrates by a woman. Socrates is almost always the teacher. This particular insight is shared with Socrates, Socrates himself having to be the student of this mysterious woman from Montanea. Try to pay attention to me, she said, as best you can. You see... The man who has been thus far educated in matters of love, who has beheld beautiful things in the right order and correctly, is coming now to the goal of all loving. All of a sudden, he will catch sight of something wonderful, wonderfully beautiful in its nature. That, Socrates, is the reason for all his earlier labors. First, watch how metaphysical this is in the way that I was just trying to explain. First, it's this thing that you catch sight of. It always is, and neither comes to be nor passes away, neither waxes nor wanes. Second, it's not beautiful this way and ugly that way, nor beautiful at one time and ugly at another, nor beautiful in relation to one thing and ugly in relation to another, nor is it beautiful here but ugly there, as it would be if it were beautiful for some people and ugly for others, nor will the beautiful appear to him in the guise of a face or hands or anything else that belongs to the body, it will not appear to him as one idea or one kind of knowledge. It is not anywhere in another thing as in an animal or in earth or in heaven or in anything else, but itself, by itself, with itself. It is always one in form, and all other beautiful things share in that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is metaphysical thinking. This was the fruit of a long tradition wherein he's saying, behind beautiful things, there must be something that is, is simply beautiful and never changes in its beauty and doesn't just have beauty, but is beauty. 
and there is life. Socrates, my friends, said the woman from Montanea. There, if anywhere, should a person live his life beholding that beauty. Ladies and gentlemen, again, I say to you, here's metaphysics at its height, and here's where it immediately cuts, connects back to human happiness. I'm about to give you a text from St. Thomas, where he's going to say the same thing. Human happiness is going to be in beholding being that is the highest of being, the very being that metaphysics is trying ever so hard, even if it only succeeds so much, to get at. And then a great line, there is life, beholding that being. Now, that's a completely different worldview than the non-metaphysical one. Again, when there's non-metaphysics, the non-metaphysics, there's nothing worth beholding, so you're going to have a completely different understanding of human happiness. If you once see that, I go on for a couple more lines, it won't occur to you to measure beauty by gold or clothing or beautiful youths who, if you see them now, strike you out of your senses, yes. But how would it be in your view, she said, if someone got to see beautiful itself, absolute, pure, unmixed, not polluted by human flesh or colors or any other great nonsense of mortality, but if you could see the divine beauty itself in its one form? Do you think it would be a poor life for a human being to look there and to behold it by that which he ought and to be with it? I, I, I just find that quotation from a pagan to be utterly stunning. It, it Doesn't it just pull you up short and speak to something within you that says, surely there must be, be, be something like that that I can discover and that I could know? Is it possible? that then in just knowing it would be my happiness. And if you have the text of the uh, St. Thomas's prologue to the exposition of the Book of Causes, I ask you to pop that up right now. And if you don't, we're not going to sweat it. This, ladies and gentlemen, is anytime in St. Thomas, when he's about to write a commentary on an important book, and he writes a prologue to it, it's always going to be worth <laughs> the price of admission. Here is the, it's the prologue to a very metaphysical work, and it is going to lay out for us a couple of our key notions that we're going to use to start to talk about the science of metaphysics. And it's going to connect very much with what we were just saying from the great teacher Plato. Ready? Here we go. This is St. Thomas Aquinas. As the philosopher, that means Aristotle, says, as the philosopher says in Ethics 10.7, Man's ultimate happiness consists in man's best activity, in the be in best activity, which is of his highest faculty, namely intellect, with respect to the most intelligible thing. Ladies and gentlemen, here he, this, he, he's saying this as an introduction to a metaphysical work. He immediately connects it to human nature and human happiness. What We don't have time to go into it any more than just to say, what is Aristotle's view of human happiness? It is Plato's view. Plato, who was Aristotle's teacher. What was Plato's view that I just gave you from that most expressive text from the symposium? The human being comes to its fullest perfection when it is contemplating, when it is united in an intellectual vision with unchanging being beauty. So now he says it's going to be in the highest activity, the highest power, the highest power is intellect, the highest activity, beautiful. The highest activity of the, of the highest power is then going to be understanding the things that are the highest things that are there to understand. Let's go on. Because the effect, 
some of this is going to be harder than we're going to be able to completely dry out, but let's roll. Because the effect is known by its cause, it's clear that the cause is in its nature more intelligible. Very important term. Intelligible literally means intelligible, able to be known. The cause is in its nature more knowable than the effect. Although sometimes effects are more known to us than causes because we acquire knowledge of universal intelligible causes from particulars that fall under the senses. Therefore, it's necessary that simply speaking, the first causes of things should be in themselves the highest and most intelligible, again, knowable. This is so because they are maximal beings and maximal truths, and thus the cause of essence and truths in others, as is evident from the philosopher in Metaphysics 2.1, although such causes are less and later known for us. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a ton that just happened there in the sentence, in that paragraph, that's really important for understanding metaphysics. The human mind naturally, Aristotle begins the metaphysics by saying, the human mind naturally desires to know. Not just know anything. We want to know big. We want to get to the root of things. To get to the root of things, to really know, that means we want to know causes. There are causes, ladies and gentlemen, and there are causes. Some causes are the causes of other causes. You see something very natural in children. They ask a question and they ask why, and you give them an answer, and they very recently say, but why? And I'm not talking about when it's, but why I can't have a candy. It's, but why, when they've asked something about, why do birds do that? Well, but why? Then you give, you give an answer that's a kind of an answer, but at the same time they go, but why? But why? There's something natural. Whatever you do, we must not beat that out of our children. We must draw that out of them. As Aristotle, that is metaphysical thinking, hardwired into them. Don't change the programming, which a bad culture can do. Teach them not to ask those questions anymore. Just get to work. Just study these things. Don't worry about those questions you find found yourself asking. We are naturally metaphysical animals. Because we keep asking why, that's metaphysical. And to ask for the why behind the why. The why behind the why is the cause behind the cause. Because the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, there is a cause for everything. There are higher causes of lower causes. There are more remote causes of the more proximate causes. And to come to know the higher causes is to come to a better understanding of the causes that are more proximate. Have we not found this often in our life? When you finally break through, you're trying to understand something and go, ah, that's why. I go, Christian, for a moment, can you believe, can, can you imagine, can you begin to picture how astounding it will be when we finally see why? For so many things that right now we just cannot grasp why, and we want to know why. It's natural to want to know why, but sometimes the metaphysician has to be patient and not demand to be able to see immediately all that you would have wanted to see. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see it. We have to be patient in the inquiry, as Sir John Paul II said. So the metaphysical inquiry, which will ultimately lead into the science, because as he's about to say, the science of metaphysics, ladies and gentlemen, is the science of the highest causes. The science of metaphysics is the science of understanding the causes that are behind everything. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the key to why metaphysics is going to be the highest science, and it's going to be the science that stands in judgment of all the other sciences, because it is the science of the causes that are the causes of all the other causes.
I wasn't trying to be funny. I, I, I hope you understood what I just said. Right? I mean, that was the key. I will say it again. Metaphysics is, is the science of the first causes. The first causes are the causes of the other causes. If you know the first causes and you know the causes of the other causes, you know the causes of everything. Wisdom is always the highest vantage point. Wisdom is by seeing the first causes to understand everything else in light of them, which also happens to be the essence of human happiness. Wisdom is another name for metaphysics. St. Thomas says the science of metaphysics is the science of wisdom, naturally speaking, naturally speaking. Metaphysics is the science of wisdom. Why? Because wisdom is, remember what, what's, what's it pertain? We're going to connect a couple of things. What does it belong to the wise man to do? To give order. If you're going to give order, you have to first of all know order. So the wise man has to know the first causes. St. Thomas is intent upon showing in a number of the texts we're not going to be able to go through. The higher the causes you know, the more wise you are. Here's a simple example he gives. He says, he says, a carpenter says, he says, the one who is fashioning the parts of a ship has a certain wisdom. He knows how to fashion the parts of this ship, but he doesn't understand exactly ultimately how, why a ship has to be the way it is. He just knows how to fashion things to fit the specifications of the one who designed the ship. He's a master carpenter. He knows causes. He knows a number of whys. That was W-H-Y apostrophe S, not W-I-S-E. But then, then the one who is the architect of the ship, he has the deeper view. He understands why the shipbuilder does what the shipbuilder does. That is a higher knowledge. It's a knowledge that grounds the other knowledge. He loves, he loves to use the crafts. There are architects and then there's the master architects. The master architect has the view that gives the reason for everything else. In, in using wisdom in a broad sense, the master architect is more wise because he has the bigger picture. Human intellect always wants to see the biggest picture. And so we naturally want to go from the more proximate causes to the deeper causes. This is what the science of metaphysics does more systematically. It brings us to the highest beings, and ultimately it brings us to the highest being, God, though it is only able to know him by the light of... Right now we're talking about metaphysics as a natural science, and we're setting aside for the moment. In any case, I'll make a virtue briefly, more next time, though even then it's not going to be our subject matter, how there can be a supernatural wisdom that gives an insight to the higher cause in a different kind of way. Frankly, to be able to appreciate that in its stunning beauty, you've got to understand this, this point first. Grace perfects nature. You have to understand the, the nature. And the man is naturally a metaphysical animal because he wants to know why. He wants to come to wisdom. He wants to have insight into the first causes. Ladies and gentlemen, if there are no first causes, and I'm just using a plural. This is the way that St. Thomas himself, too, speaks. First is always a relative term. There's only one first, first, first cause, but he is willing to say there are first causes. Ladies and gentlemen, in St. Thomas's view, in a Christian view, the highest angels 
actually do quite a bit. They're not window dressing. And so it's not unreasonable to speak of first causes. One thing that in any case says St. Thomas, the more that you study reality, the more you see something bone chillingly in a good sense, beautiful, is that one thing you discover about the first cause is he loves to share his causality. God never loses his own causality, but he does share it. Fathers and mothers cause their children in a number of ways. Their conception, their raising, their knowledge, their character, their worldview. That's a cause. It's not the absolutely first cause. It's only a participation in a higher cause. But it's real. Real metaphysics. One of the most astounding elements of it is it knows how to preserve something that most philosophers couldn't figure it out. They didn't get it right. And they caused a catastrophe. First causality and secondary causality. God's causality is so rich, he can cause other things to be causes, which is to let them be like him. And this is all something that we discover in metaphysical thinking as we pursue this natural search and try to go deeper into finding the causes behind the causes. It is a stunning instance of you keep seeing more, you keep getting the deeper view, and you get a deeper view. Can you imagine what it would be like for someone like an Aristotle just coming at this naturally? He saw causes behind causes and causes behind causes. And then one day, I, I can imagine what the day would have been like. He all of a sudden saw, oh, my God, you mean this was all, all planned by one at the beginning? And it doesn't break down all this. All of a sudden, you look back through this incredible masterpiece, and the whole thing lights up because it was someone's plan. And you say, oh, God, I haven't seen. And perhaps he smiles, and he says, and now you do. Or now you're starting to. And you know what? There's a lot more to come. This is always the structure of wisdom. You're going deeper. You're going further. It's to say we use these weird prepositions, going further back. It makes it sound like you're getting far away. You're not getting far away. To go up the chain of being, you're not you're not getting remote in the sense of you're floating away into something that's far away. When you get to the heart of metaphysics, St. Thomas is going to say, God, I don't mean to cheat. You're not really going to get, you're not really going to understand, but, but just saying what we've been saying, you can understand. I don't really understand exactly what I'm saying, but it's, it's worth saying because this is the kind of thing that metaphysics, the science is after and all metaphysical thinking is after and we're all after because we're made for it. It turns out that God is being and he is lovingly holding all other being in being. And St. Thomas says, that must mean that he, as first cause, is more intimate to the thing he's holding in existence than that thing is to itself. That's metaphysics. I myself go a little too long there. 
this is what we need to do. I need to give you a couple of, of, of definitions. I gave you the structure, ladies and gentlemen, the structure of metaphysics, the science of being in as much as it is being, that also is especially after understanding the highest causes so as to understand all being. Again, I say, if there's no such thing as higher causes that are the cause of everything, then there is no metaphysics. There are, there are people that reject metaphysical thinking, not just because someone told them to, but they've done so in a very knowing way. These maybe are the philosophers. It's a dramatic, very dramatic thing. It's a very scary thing. They see no way. For whatever reason, was it a choice? Was it they were misled? It doesn't matter right now. I just need you to see there can be an interior logic of there can't be metaphysics because there aren't any causes of this. Ladies and gentlemen, frankly, if the Big Bang in fact were what some claim it is, namely a real origin of fundamentally the way things are, then there isn't any metaphysics. There isn't a science of what actually gives order to everything. You've got utterly different universes here. At the end of the day, is it an ordered universe that, that actually is the way it is because of very intentional causality or not? If not, then this other view can be self-consistent and say there aren't those causes, no. And for you to say that there are, you're pretending in you're in fairyland. You do metaphysical thinking, be prepared to be accused of being in fairyland. Of course, G.K. Chesterton once wonderfully said, the amazing thing about reality is it's much better than any fairyland anyone ever imagined. I, for one, think that's true. Aristotle, astoundingly, and Plato, without explicit divine revelation, they certainly held that. All right, we're going we're gonna to go over just a little bit, but so I, I got to tell you, and then the three names for metaphysics. Ready for the three names for metaphysics? Three names for metaphysics are metaphysics. <laughs> How about that? And first philosophy and divine science or theology. These are our three main names. Now, honestly, wisdom is another name, but St. Thomas often when he lists the three, lists those three. We can add as a fourth simply wisdom. Wisdom is another name, but the classic list of three he gives is metaphysics, first philosophy, and divine science. Another name for divine science is theology. Theology, you, as Christians, you're used to that being revealed theology. It, the theology we're talking about here, to avoid confusion, we call it natural theology. So again, you want your three normal traditional names of metaphysics. Metaphysics, first philosophy. And thirdly, divine science slash natural theology. Very quickly, why is it called metaphysics? The word meta in, in, in Greek means after or beyond. And so physics is from the word for nature. So the science of physics for Aristotle was the study of the natural world, the natural changing world. Metaphysics is the science that comes after physics. Why does it come after physics? Main reason? Because you can't come to those higher causes unless you've understood the things more approximately first. This is the way the human mind works. I have to, I have to assert that I meant to spend a little more time on this. Just note this, please. Key to understanding our traditional understanding of metaphysics. It is the last science to be studied. Why? Because, because given the human mode of knowing, 
Given that we have to begin with things that are more obvious to us in sense experience, we have to work our way up to it. Patient inquiry. Maybe our good God wanted to teach us something by making it have to be done last, only after patient inquiry. In any case, it, it, that is the understanding that you have to done physics or something in the natural world to some extent has to have come first and provide the foundation. So metaphysics literally means beyond or after physics. First philosophy, why is it called first? Not because it's studied first, because as we just denoted, it is not uh, first in the order of study or in time, but first because it studies the first causes, which is what we just went, went through. So you can call it first philosophy, because philosophy is always interested in causes, but metaphysics, which is at the height of philosophy, is called first philosophy because it's the philosophy that has to do with the first causes. Finally, divine science or natural theology. Why is metaphysics called this? It gets its name of divine science or natural theology from its highest object, God. God, of course, being divine. So God is not the only object of metaphysics. God looks at a number of highest causes and a number of other things that all beings have in common. So metaphysics has a number of objects that it studies, but its highest object is God. And so this name comes from its highest object, divine science or natural theology. So I absolutely have to stop there. I'll stop there and we can do questions. Thank you so much, Professor Katterbeck. Goodness. Reflecting a lot in the first half, you had mentioned the, uh, our best and brightest, right? Being afraid to, uh, chase down the deeper questions, uh, with the confidence that they could answer them. And what a difference it makes to, to realize that you can pursue those questions and that there are wise masters that are willing to lead the way. And so thank you. I'm so gonna, much. I'm gonna, Andy, I'm going to say something in, in 30 seconds. I promise we'll not go over 30 seconds, but I just have to say this. Yes. And Aristotle said, even a little knowledge of the highest things, he said, I will always treasure more than a fuller knowledge of lower things. And so he, he, he was, he was resigned to the fact, and this is, this is the astounding thing. It's so beautiful to see without divine revelation. He was mm -hmm. resigned to the fact that he would come to know little about God, but he explicitly says, but that little I know about the first cause in that will most of all be my happiness, though I still will see there is so much more to see. Mm. There's a teacher for you, Aristotle. We're taking questions in the uh, Q&A box, and we've got a fair amount here. Um, I want to uh, just first start with Mr. McManus's, and then I see Kristen and Ray. You had your hand raised there, too. <clears throat> All right, Mr. McManus was uh, is saying that um, a lot of the people who uh, – we've talked about people who are kind of entrenched in the hard and, say, natural sciences, mm -hmm. almost skipping right over this – discipline or this science of metaphysics. And he's wondering if you can explain the gap here, because in one sense, those who are, you know, let's say very well versed in chemistry or physics or something, they are trained to think in an abstract manner. And I think and I got it, Andy. 
I think I, 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 I think I got it. I mean, it just won't be as, as, as everything that that good question deserves. But I put it to you this way: this is, in any case, one angle on that. The change in metaphysics has led to involves that the way we study the lower sciences is different. I'm, I'm sorry to have to put it this way, but I think it's an important part of it. A, a lot of, uh, there are metaphysical presuppositions, for instance, of how much, I'll just choose one, biology is studied. And unfortunately, by and large, the biology that is studied is a metaphysically deprived one. And I'm not, and I'm saying that means that it's all wrong. But in many ways, it is working on certain propositions, premises that are actually anti-metaphysical. And so the, the scientific mindset often in this degraded version tends to close the mind from going through these sciences to the higher science of metaphysics. And so part of the renewal of metaphysics will have to be the renewal of these other sciences, which done in a better way will then naturally lead us through them up to the higher things that are behind them. But if we have anti-metaphysical presuppositions in the other sciences that we're studying, then those great minds that are spending their life in those sciences, actually their mind is being molded in such a way that is often already limiting their ability, even though they can think abstractly. It's not just about abstract thinking. Again, abstract thinking can be connected back to critical thinking. Just because you're thinking abstractly doesn't mean that you're going in the right direction. So I hope I've addressed it by saying we have, I know it's a big issue. We're going to have to renew in terms of certain metaphysical first principles, those other sciences, which is one of the St. Thomas's key points is how metaphysics doesn't, doesn't get in there and monkey with all the little propositions. It leaves the proper integrity to the other sciences, but it does stand above them, reminding them of certain things as it were keeping them in line as the, as the science that stands above. What's next? Uh, Ray, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself? You can ask and then Kristen, you'll be next. It just seems to me the people who reject metaphysics, as you described it, have to assume a metaphysics to then reject it. Or, or am I, did I, do I have it all backwards? No, 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 no. That's not, that, that, that's a very, me. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. Tricky question, but, but I'm just going to fundamentally affirm it. Does Nietzsche have a metaphysics? At the end of the day, the answer to that is yes. Because you, you can't get around ultimately holding that things are a certain way. And, and so even anti-metaphysics is metaphysical and, and it's a great insight. And so it is, it is true. The age is both now is both characterized by a rejection of metaphysics, but in that very rejection of metaphysics, it has, it has replaced it with something that could be called a metaphysics, but of course, it's such an impoverished one and a wrong one that it's not actually a metaphysics, but it is a kind of metaphysics. And we, we see this in the history of philosophy where you had things really quickly, such as this. You actually had then when the just, when Kant had rejected reality as knowable and said, all we can know is how things appear to us. Then Hegel makes this fascinating shift that he says, well, then, the appearances, that is reality. And so then you kind of have, for Hegel, it comes after the rejection of metaphysics, but in a sense you get metaphysics back, but it's the metaphysics of appearances. 
and not of being, but but it but it is a kind of metaphysics. So so yes, you, you are right. At the end of the day, to really speak at all, you have to make certain metaphysical assertions. That, but but it certainly doesn't mean that you're going to be doing a true metaphysics or or that you're going to grant that. Ray, how are we doing? Fine. Kristen, you can go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, ask your question there. Okay. Would it be possible to say that today we tend to exchange, instead of asking how, we ask, I mean, instead of asking why, we ask how. Yeah. And with that, how would you distinguish those two, the difference between why and how? Yeah, I, I mean, good question. And, and of why? course, the, th the thing is, why is used in a number of different ways. And and so, I mean, a how, I, I think, can be a kind of why, how shall we put it? I, I'd say, I mean, the biology, by and large, biology and looking at life, it has much very fruitful to say about kind of how life unfolds. And, and that how is a kind of why. Um, it, it more looks at what the why, I mean, the why is a cause and there's, and there's different causes. There's the formal cause, the efficient cause, the final cause. And so in biology as a science tends to more fo focus on the material cause and kind of in how it is unfolding. The, the deeper whys, and this is something that metaphysics particularly brings out among the causes, the most important cause is the what's called the final cause, the that for the sake of which, the kind of ultimate reason. It's the final cause that particularly was rejected by Descartes, most of modern philosophy, and, and was that which made be central by Aristotle, held that all this order must have come about for the final cause of trying to imitate the goodness of where we've come from, the first cause. All right, so back to where you were. Um, the Yes, I would say that by and large, the human mind is always going to look for things to do. And I, I, here's another thing I would say. We're going to tend to take a turn towards the practical when we've, when we've destroyed the speculative ability of the intellect to just gaze upon the truth. You, in any case, then will exercise the practical ability of the intellect to get stuff done. So we are in the, that this is, was this the pragmatic to which the Pope was referring. And I'd say by and large, pragmatic things, tend to more be how things. How does this work? Plus, how will I be able to imitate it? How, how do you build, how does that work such that you could build a rocket? How is, it, it tends to be more of a know-how, of, of a practicality, of a technology. And so much of the science, much of the sciences is not ultimately interested in inter, insight into the way things are, into some deeper order that's worth contemplating, but particularly is interested in manipulating it which is, again, and I think the word how is particularly also pointing to that more practical turn that we have taken away from there are certain whys that are so amazing that they're just worth gazing upon. You don't just gaze upon hows, but you do gaze upon certain whys. What else? And what else we got? Hmm. Um, we'll end with Kathleen's question, and she writes in, and speaking of the dangers of metaphysical thinking, is being seen as self-righteous one of those dangers along the lines of overzealous? If this is so, how can we distinguish being 
holy versus unholy. I think another way you could phrase this is, I think today we we kind of mock because we don't have that hope in finding answers to these deep questions. Uh, and there's that insecurity. I think we tend to mock when someone tries to go deep. You know, someone says something at a social gathering and, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, that's, we're going deep, man. How, how do you, how do we uh, br- bring this subject to other people, but not come off as esoteric? Great question. Um, so. Great question. All right. Let me, and there's a number of directions we could go with that. I'm just going to, I'm going to put it this way. Remember, in any true greatness, there will be the temptation of pride. The temptation of pride would be to think that it's yours as though it's first yours and not something given to you. It takes humility to receive and to always still recognize it as received. I go back to the moment from earlier on where I was saying God and his generosity shares with us his causality. Let's put it that way in a very metaphysical way. We can make the turn towards our own then nobility and see ourselves as great. This goes back in a sense to our opening. Are we the measure of things? The man who has received so much and now who is wise and now has the order of reality in some sense inscribed in himself. And now sapienti says ordinary. It's of the wise man to order. You can lose sight. Right. I mean, of course, so they so they had the slave go behind the, the conquering champion. And what, what did he say? You know, remember that you are I want to say the Ash Wednesday thing. I'm going to mix up. You are dust and the dust you shall return. That's not what they said in the ears of the, of the conqueror. But you know what I'm saying to remember you're just, you're just a man. Part of wisdom will be always to see that everything that we have achieved is given to us. And so is there a danger towards pride? I don't think there's anything that could more tempt you towards pride, naturally speaking, in any case, than this greatest of natural perfections, namely having come to wisdom. So is there is there a danger? Yes, there is. The true metaphysician will keep his eyes on the truth that he's seeing of that all he has is received. Is it yours? Yes, it's yours. It's yours because it's been given to you. So I simply take that question as pointing to we need to be extremely careful in this as in all things to recognize in this this great thing is a gift. This great thing is an incredible treasure and should be received for what it is. And, and but not treated as though I have done this for myself. It's a gift I received. It's a gift I'll share. That's what I take from that question. Thanks for asking. Excellent. And uh, Kathleen, also just on the perspective of sharing that with somebody too, don't underestimate things are working in your favor in the sense that everyone is hungry for this. And uh, yeah, it may be initially mocked if you try to have a conversation, you try to start a conversation about this. But the reality is, deep down inside, people are glad that you started a conversation like that. And I think there's a temptation for us to have kind of this false sense of humility that, oh, you know, I'm going to look like a smarty pants or whatever. And now that can be true, but it also can be the fact that um, we are sometimes afraid to let that light shine. 
Um, and we, we need to not be afraid to do that, especially given what Professor Cutterback said, which is not our light. So you don't have to be, you know, shine it and you don't have to feel like you're taking center stage. And sometimes just stating something has more power. I think of what, uh, Professor Cutterback was saying about the fairs behind the trees, right? If you just had that on a piece of paper somewhere, um, you know, maybe there are fairs behind the trees. I think that could be easily laughed at and dismissed. But when you have someone stating that earnestly and in your presence, all of a sudden, the the confidence with which someone speaks a truth can um, have great impact on uh, someone being more receptive and open to it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.